everyone. I'm Sam. And I'm Sean. And you're listening to Key to the Case. Welcome back. We want to give a big thank you to everyone who continually supports the show and listens to the show. It really means a lot to us, probably more than you know. And for today, we are nearing the 20-year anniversary of the case we're covering, which is far too long that this case has gone unsolved. With that said, let's jump right in. Lisa Guerreri was 19 years old at the time of her murder in 2003. Lisa grew up in Mesa, Arizona, and she was described as beautiful both inside and out. According to the Arizona Republic, it was a running joke that Lisa would smile and excitedly say good morning to everyone she passed by. Lisa graduated from Mesa High School, and she began studying business at Mesa Community College. After she watched the movie Wedding Planner, starring Jennifer Lopez and Matthew McConaughey, she was inspired to become just that, a wedding planner. And it seems that there were no doubts that she would have become a successful wedding planner had her life not been cut so short. Lisa had a part-time job working as a receptionist at SRP, or Salt River Project, which is a power and water utility company in Arizona. She was well-liked among her coworkers, even being described as the office princess. Lisa was known to have a wonderful singing voice, and she often sang in her church's choir. Tragically, Lisa's dad passed away from cancer in May 2002 at the age of 48. Before he passed, his brother, so Lisa's uncle, Mike, made the promise to look after Lisa when he was gone. Lisa's dad passed away just a little over a year before she was murdered. Brandon Rumbaugh was 20 years old at the time of his murder in 2003. Brandon attended Coronado High School in Scottsdale, Arizona, where he was the only boy a part of the school's dance company. His former teacher told the Arizona Republic that he always lit up when he performed. Brandon was a painter and sculptor, and he played the drums in the local band. So it's clear that Brandon and Lisa were both creative people. After high school, Brandon joined the Marine Reserves, where he was active for two years until he was medically discharged due to a knee injury. Brandon was often described as a tall and skinny kid, but he really found a love for fitness and he built himself up. So he went from being skinny to quite strong and muscular. He even had dreams of opening his own gym one day, but for the time being, he worked as a personal trainer in Mesa while he attended Arizona State University. It's sad to think how Brandon and Lisa both had these dreams. Lisa being a wedding planner and Brandon opening gym, when you're that young, 19 and 20, you don't always know what you want to do. But Lisa and Brandon both seem to be driven, and I'm sure they would have gone on to do exactly what they wanted to do. Brandon's dad described that their relationship had shifted from parent-child to more of a friendship as Brandon got a little older, and he told the Arizona Republic, quote, You see them starting to spread their wings and fly. I was looking forward to watching that and seeing how he soared, end quote. Lisa and Brandon's lives intertwined when they met at a club in October 2002, where they sparked a seemingly instant connection, and they went stargazing for their first date. Wow, that's a pretty romantic first date. I think we just went to a local bar for dinner for our first date. You think? (laughs) 
No, I know. I, I know we did that. I don't know why I said I think. <laughs> yeah. we, that's, that's what we did. Yeah, I was going to say, you already forgot. <laughs> it's Although been it has, five years. Yeah, it has been five years. I think it's romantic too. And I think it's interesting. I would never go on a stargazing first date because of how much true crime I consume. That would not feel comfortable to me at all. But I, we have to consider that they did meet before. Like they had met at a club before. So this wasn't a blind first date. Yeah, and it's probably also a testament of how well they hit it off immediately. They fully trusted each other instantly. Right. And by all accounts, Lisa and Brandon were madly in love. Lisa's mom, Paula, said the sun set and rose on Brandon and that Brandon treated Lisa like a queen. Paula said they were engaged, although she hadn't seen a ring yet. She believed they wanted to wait until they completed school but regardless, it seemed they both intended to be with each other, likely for the rest of their lives. So it was no surprise when Brandon moved into Lisa's Scottsdale apartment just two months before their one-year anniversary in August 2003. Lisa and Brandon looked forward to their upcoming anniversary, and they initially planned to take a trip to Disneyland, but they opted for a lower-cost celebration that would entail a recreation of their first date by going stargazing. Their place of choice was an undesignated desert campsite along Bumblebee Road in Bumblebee, Arizona, which was once a stagecoach town, but today there are only a few permanent residents. This is an exceedingly remote desert area, and one of the first things I do when researching a case is I go to Google Earth to review and look at the locations that are relevant to the story. It really helps me get a better picture of where we're talking about. In this case, there was no street view available of Bumblebee Road, although there wouldn't be much to see with the street view anyway, just because it is a remote area. Now, we don't have the exact coordinates of where they intended to stay, but they ended up just about two miles west of Interstate 17 near Sunset Point on Bumblebee Road in a dirt parking area that was fairly isolated. So were they planning on camping out or were they just going to go Stargaze for a little bit and then and then leave. They were planning on staying overnight, but they didn't have a tent or anything. They just planned to sleep in the bed of the truck. But neither Lisa or Brandon owned a truck, so they asked Lisa's mom, Paula, if they could borrow her 2000 white Ford F-150 for their overnight excursion. So they planned to leave Friday, October 17th, and then they intended to return relatively early the following morning. Paula had reservations about allowing them to borrow the truck. Lisa had never been camping before, and the truck was due for an oil change. But after thinking it over, she reluctantly agreed to let them borrow the truck, and they set off on the hour-long drive to Bumblebee. Paula called Lisa while they were driving to see if they were there yet, but Lisa indicated that they, quote, still had so many miles to go. That was the last time anyone besides Brandon would speak with Lisa. When Lisa and Brandon didn't return Paula's truck the following morning, she grew worried. She told ABC 15, quote, the day she went missing, call it a mother's instinct. I don't know what it was, but I knew there was something wrong, end quote. And I've heard about these gut feelings before in other cases where a parent or sibling has a sudden bad feeling that then turns into a reality. And I always find it 
little unsettling when I hear about this. Um, I've never experienced anything like that, but it's strange how you hear it enough where it starts to seem like, okay, this is a real phenomenon that people experience. Early on, Lisa and Brandon's families wondered if they had decided to stay another day or they joked that maybe they ran off to Vegas to get married on a whim. But Paula believed that Lisa would tell her if they decided to extend their trip, especially since they had her vehicle. And the thought of them going to Vegas spontaneously quickly turned into a best-case scenario. Paula began calling everyone she knew to help search for the pair And Lisa's brothers, as well as several of Brandon's friends, drove to the area in an attempt to find them. They searched extensively, going down every road they could find until a friend of Brandon's, who had visited the area with him before, spotted the white truck on Sunday around 3.30 p.m. Lisa and Brandon were found shot to death in the bed of the truck, still inside their sleeping bags. Paula's bad feeling quickly turned into something far more terrible than she could have imagined. The loss was obviously devastating to all of Lisa and Brandon's family and friends, but it's hard not to think about how Paula lost her husband and her daughter in such a short period. No one should ever have to go through that. Police were called to the scene, and the Yavapai County Sheriff's Office had jurisdiction of the case with the location of the murders being within Yavapai County. They determined that Lisa and Brandon were killed by multiple gunshot wounds to the head either late Friday night or early Saturday morning with a 25 caliber handgun. I did some research into 25 caliber handguns, and from what I could find, it's thought of as a pocket pistol, and some people see them as a gun used for personal defense. They started to fade in popularity in the 80s and 90s, so I think it's fair to say that in 2003, This was not necessarily a super common or popular gun for people to own. And the reason I like to research the weapon used when we discuss murders where there is a known weapon is because I wonder if it tells us something about the shooter. If this is thought of as a weapon some people would carry for personal protection, I wonder if the person who committed this crime did not leave their home that day with the intent to kill someone or this were simply the only gun they had available to them at that time for some unknown reason. You would think someone with the intent to kill would select a higher caliber gun. And I couldn't find the exact number of shots that were fired. I suspect police are intentionally withholding that evidence, but I'd be interested to know that information too. The murder weapon was not found at the scene, so the possibility of this being a murder-suicide was ruled out early on. So since they were in their sleeping bags, it doesn't appear to be any sort of struggle. Right. So obviously, I mean, they were just taken by surprise. Yes, it definitely appears that way. There weren't any signs of struggle, no defensive wounds. It seems like they didn't have a chance to defend themselves because they were still sleeping. Did the police find any of the shell casings? No. From what I could find, they didn't recover any. Unless they are holding that information back, that's possible too. Okay. Yeah, I'm guessing they probably, if if they didn't find them, then they determined the caliber based on the actual bullets themselves. But yeah, my, my question was, if they did find them, could they have possibly taken fingerprint off the casings and gone that route, but doesn't sound like they did. 
No, I, I don't believe so. However, there was a broken disposable camera found. It was discovered lying about 100 feet away from the truck. This disposable camera belonged to Lisa and Brandon. And we'll get into the photos from this camera that were covered, but I just have to ask, how in the world did the camera get 100 feet away from the truck and why? I can't come up with a reason why Lisa or Brandon would throw the camera so far away. Wouldn't they want to develop the film to see the photos they took? So it seems more likely that the killer discarded the camera, but again, why? Uh, What could the camera have to do with the murders at all? I initially wondered if the killer took the camera because they thought it might be something of value in the dark, but when they realized that it wasn't, they discarded it. But if the killer wanted to discard the camera for any reason, I would think they would do it at a secondary location, not the crime scene. Maybe they didn't want to hang on to it in case they got caught on the drive back. Yeah, that's a possibility. If they got stopped and, you know, searched and they if they got searched and found the camera and then the uh, they developed the photos and found pictures of Brandon and Lisa, then that, that would be a real indication of who the who the killer was. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking, since this is such a remote area, I keep saying that, I keep stressing that, but it is, even if you drove a mile away, you could toss it and maybe nobody would ever find it. I just found it kind of strange to just leave it at the scene. But I I see your point too. So there were several photos that were able to be retrieved from the camera, and there are three that have been shared publicly It's possible that there were more photos, but we can't be sure one way or the other. I'm going to show Sean the pictures really quickly, and then we will describe them and talk through them. But I highly recommend you check them out on our Instagram at key to the case podcast and give us your thoughts, or they should come up toward the top when you search this case online. So there are three photos to discuss. Two of the photos were clearly taken the night of the murders, with one photo being of Lisa and one of Brandon. It appeared that they took turns taking a picture of each other. In the picture of Brandon, he's positioned in what I believe is the back left corner of the truck bed with his knees propped up, his arms crossed, and he has a serious look on his face. He kind of has this tough guy look going on. So while he does have this serious expression on his face, I wouldn't say he looks mad. You can tell that Lisa likely got out of the truck to take the photo based on how much of the truck is actually visible. And you can see there's sleeping bags in the truck bed as well. It was eerie to me how dark it was out there. It looks like the kind of darkness where you can't see your hand in front of your face. Definitely unsettling, at least to me it was. The photo of Lisa is more or less the same photo as Brandon's, except she has a smile on her face. About the photo, Paula told ABC 15, quote, it wasn't her smile. It was like she was scared and she was smiling, end quote. I don't think the average person looking at this picture would see fear in Lisa's face. This seems like only the type of observation someone very close to Lisa could make. Yeah, she looked pretty happy to me. Yes. And all we can do really is compare the photo to others that are out there of her. And I can't spot much of a difference, but again, there is likely something her mom is seeing that we can't see because we didn't know Lisa. But then why would she be scared? 
Did something happen that night earlier that had her feeling unsettled? Was it just the fact that they were out in complete darkness that made her a little uncomfortable? We can't say. Something that I thought was kind of funny is how they took turns taking a photo in the same spot. If they wanted a picture of each of them solo, it seemed like they wouldn't need to take turns sitting in the same spot. Since there's no background you're trying to capture, it's not like they're taking a photo in front of a monument. I don't think this means anything in this case. I just thought it was interesting. There is a third photo that was uncovered, and we could spend a lot of time on this photo because it's a mystery on its own, but I'll try not to drag it out too much here because in my opinion, there's a fairly high probability that it's not related to the murders. So I will describe what I see in the photo, then I want to get your thoughts, Sean, and then I will share some of what others see who have looked at this photo. The problem with the photo is that it's not complete. It almost looks like the photo was taken by accident, and it's a little grainy, but my initial thought is that there are a few objects that you can make out. One being a plant that looks like a pothos plant. We have a few pothos plants, and actually when I was looking at this photo, I was sitting on our couch, and we have a pothos hanging in our living room, and I looked at the picture, and then I looked up, and I was like, that looks like the same plant to me, although I'm not sure that's what it is. It could be something else. Second, there appears to be a window. And third, there's what most think is a hanging light fixture. When I initially saw the light fixture, it seemed familiar, but I couldn't place where I normally see light fixtures like this. And then was when I was in the middle of researching this case and reviewing these photos, we took our dog for a walk and I saw a light fixture like this that was hanging over someone's garage. And then since then, I've seen this type of light fixture outdoors other places as well. So to me, it seems more of an outdoor light fixture, but the police have characterized this photo as being taken inside a building. To me, it looks like the inside of a house because you can kind of make out a, a windowsill, it looks like, from the inside point of view. Yeah, it probably is indoors, especially if that is a pothos plant. Again, I don't know if it is. Those are indoor plants. As far as I know, right. people don't keep those outdoors. You would know more than me, though. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, I agree. It does look like a plant that's hanging. Yes. Uh, with the uh, vines just hanging down. It's hard to tell what we're kind of looking at in that picture, but I do think it is the inside of a house probably taken before they made their trip. Yes, that's the other thing is we don't know the exact order in which the photos were taken. The order seems important. If the photo were taken before those of Lisa and Brandon, then this probably has no meaning. But if we're taken after, then it could hold significant meaning. Yeah, maybe whoever committed this murder took the camera, went home, was messing around with the camera, it accidentally went off, and then they went back to the site. To yeah, but why put the camera it? back there? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I was just kind of just kind of trying to rationalize why the picture would be there and yes. also why the camera was still there. You know, what was it? A couple hundred feet away from them? A hundred feet away. But I see your point. It, that's what would have had to have happened if, if <laughs> the after. killer did. Yeah. yeah, they would have had to take it to some other location either take that photo intentionally or accidentally take the photo and then bring it back. So I think most likely it was taken 
before. But then again, I wonder why are police even releasing this photo? If it was taken before, it just seems kind of random, unless these were the only pictures they were able to process and they decided to just release all of them. And I will tell you that Lisa and Brandon's family and friends don't know where this photo was taken either, which isn't that strange. I guess it could have just been somewhere that they had not been before, or it was just hard to recognize because it's a an incomplete picture. I'll reiterate, it did look like the inside of a house or an apartment. Maybe it was one of their friends and, and their parents or their families didn't know where it was, but I would assume they'd know if it was uh, Lisa's apartment. Yeah, it was or, not their okay. apartment, right? Yeah, so, and if it were a friend's house, I pretty sure the police showed this picture to all of their loved ones. You'd think they would say, oh, that was my house. But interestingly enough, some people online have suggested that this picture looks like it was taken inside an RV, which could be significant because of where they were. And others have speculated that the picture could be upside down. And what it's actually showing is a bowl, not a light fixture, with a light reflecting off of the bowl. And that bowl is sitting on a table with a runner. I can see that when I flip the picture, But again, no one knows where this photo is taken, so we can't say with any certainty what we're looking at. As investigators reviewed the scene, it became clear that Lisa and Brandon were not robbed, but they found a case for a video camera that was empty, indicating that someone had taken the video camera from them. This is often referred to as a borrowed video camera, although it's not clear from whom they borrowed the camera. The Yavapai County Sheriff's Office has the serial number for this camera, but to date, it has never been found. It seems like if someone wanted to rob them, they would take the truck or their wallets. So you have to wonder if the video camera was taken for a specific reason or if it was to potentially throw the investigation off. There were no signs of sexual assault and drugs and alcohol were not a factor. Yeah, so that's where my head is going initially is someone's driving by, they see a truck because, I mean, I'm I'm assuming Brandon and Lisa are sleeping at this point. So someone drives by, sees a truck that is seemingly abandoned or just sitting out there alone with no one in it. So maybe someone wanted to go either steal the truck or take parts off of it or, you know, see if there's any valuables inside. And they end up finding two people sleeping in the back and they get caught. And then, you know, from there, they they get murdered. Yeah, that's definitely a possibility we can dive into more. I can see that happening. I can easily see how someone driving by would see this truck and think, oh, someone just left this here and see it as a perfect opportunity to steal the car. And there was a crime that was somewhat similar that I'll tell you about later where someone's truck or their car was stolen in a fashion that would be similar to this as what happened to Lisa and Brandon if it was actually stolen. Yeah, to me, I can't think of any other possibilities on why they would get killed. It seems like the most probable event to me is that they someone saw an abandoned truck and wanted to either steal it or, you know, like I said, rob it for its valuable parts. But I suppose there'd have to be multiple people involved with 
someone driving one car and then, you know, another person or two, two other people get out and try to steal it. Right. So, because yeah. they wouldn't just leave their car behind. Right, exactly. Yeah. At the same time, though, if that was the case and some people wanted to come steal this truck or, or take the parts, why, if you discover some people sleeping in the, in the bed of the truck, why kill them? I'm assuming if you think this truck's abandoned, you're not, maybe, maybe you would be carrying your gun, but I would assume you wouldn't be. So if they found Brandon and Lisa in the bed of the truck, and they weren't carrying their gun, then they would have had to go back to their car and get the gun and then go back and kill them. Right. Why, why not just drive off, speed off? Yeah, it becomes a seemingly very intentional act at that point. If they didn't have their gun on them already, they have to go back, get it. And if they were worried about being seen, I don't really see why. It was so dark out there that I highly doubt Lisa and Brandon would have gotten that great of a look at this person who just attempted to steal their car. They probably wouldn't even gotten that good of a look at the car. I definitely don't think they would have made out a license plate or anything. So it seems odd to kill them and fear that they would um, be able to recognize you or something. And then also multiple gunshot wounds to the head. I mean, we talked about this in episode nine, I believe it was, the Saito family murders. We talked about how it seemed like overkill. And I see the same thing here, especially in a case like this, where with what you're talking about, if they were trying to steal this car, I mean, why shoot them multiple times, especially when they were seemingly asleep? Actually, that was episode eight that I'm thinking of, the Saito murders. So when the news came out about the murders of Lisa and Brandon, the community really came together to raise money through a car wash and a bake sale. And many people made donations outside of those events as well. The funds went toward the funerals and a $10,000 reward that was put up for information that led to an arrest or conviction of the murderer. In November 2003, Paula said, quote, if it weren't for the people in Arizona, we wouldn't be able to offer this reward, end quote. And over the years, Lisa and Brandon's families have often openly expressed their gratitude for the outpouring of support they received. It's encouraging to see a community come together in a situation like this. I often think about how the families we discuss are likely faced with financial stress in the midst of what is probably the worst event of their life. How are you supposed to even think about funding a funeral or a reward when you're still processing what happened and grieving the loss? So while the people in Mesa were providing support, the people who lived a bit closer to where the murders occurred were frightened. In this remote area, there are so few residents that having murders like this occur was shocking. There was one man who openly started wearing a nine millimeter pistol on his hip. So it's clear that people were pretty jittery after the murders. It later came out there was a witness who spotted Brandon and another man arguing at the Scottsdale Greens apartment complex where Lisa and Brandon lived. According to a November 2003 article from the Arizona Republic, Brandon and a man who was described as tall, husky, and white in his 40s wearing jeans and a white t-shirt 
were seen arguing in the apartment doorway around 10 p.m. a day or more before the murders. I wanted to look at these apartments. So the article that called the complex Scottsdale Greens also gave the address, and it's conflicting because the address is different from when you search Scottsdale Greens, although they are about two minutes away from each other. The point is, I wanted to see what kind of complex this was. Was this a large building with one main entrance, and that's where they were seen arguing? Or were they seen at Brandon and Lisa's specific apartment? And I think the latter is correct. The description of the man is vague and almost useless. My first question is related to the age of the man, if the witness was correct. I thought back to when I was 20, who would I interact with in their 40s? Because most people, when they're 20 years old, aren't friends with people in their 40s. Three people or groups came to mind for me. Family members, neighbors, and coworkers. But then who would be at my home? Most likely a family member or a neighbor. And this man has never been linked to a family member of Brandon's, so it makes you wonder if he were a neighbor. Maybe this man thought Brandon and Lisa were being too loud and he confronted him about it. Speculation on my part, but what bothers me is that this person has never been found. I'm inclined to think the argument is unrelated because I don't know how this person would have found Brandon and Lisa that night. But then I ask, why did this person not come forward if the argument had nothing to do with the murders? I suppose they could have been scared that they would get looked at as a suspect, but if you truly had an innocuous argument, then that person should have come forward. There is a man that Lisa and Brandon's family members have been suspicious of, which we'll get into, but he doesn't match the description of the man seen in the argument. Yeah, the guy was probably just nervous or anxious that he'd be looked at closely as a suspect, even if it was a pointless argument. Yeah, that's a possibility. And I suppose it's possible that he didn't hear the news that they were looking for him. That seems unlikely, but kind of like with the Barbara Bullock case, the two guys they were looking for, we speculated that maybe those guys didn't hear they were being looked for. So I suppose that's an option here too. Police identified and interviewed many people who were in the area to camp the night of the murders, and reportedly, they believe there were up to 1,000 people in the general area that night, yet no one heard gunshots or witnessed anything of value. Some campers recalled seeing the truck as late as Saturday afternoon, which is eerie to think they drove by the truck when Lisa and Brandon were lying dead in the back. There seemed to be two schools of thought in this case regarding who was behind the murders. According to Lisa's family, a close friend of the couple had strong feelings for Lisa. The family shared this information with investigators, and reportedly, this friend packed up and moved out of state after the murders. It's unclear if this person planned to move before the murders or if this was a decision made afterward. Moving is a pretty involved process. You could have to find a new job or school. You have to fund the move. There's just a lot involved. So while it could be viewed as suspicious, it's possible this was in the works already, but it didn't sound that way from what I read. Police investigated this man who allegedly passed a polygraph exam And from what I could find, he has not been named publicly, and police have not categorized him as a suspect. 
I struggle with this theory solely because it's hard to comprehend why he would want to kill both Lisa and Brandon. If he had feelings for Lisa, it doesn't necessarily make sense that he would kill her as well. Regardless, I do think it's important to consider what family members think in the cases we cover because they are so much closer to the case and they have knowledge we don't have. So I do see it as a possibility. And I also consider the possibility that it was not this man who killed them, but potentially someone else who knew them and knew approximately where they would be that night. But then again, I'd think the case might be solved by now if it were someone close to them. I don't think it's too wildly far-fetched for for it to be the person that moved away. I mean, if he declared his feelings for her and said, I want to be with you, and, and she denied him, it could be motive for him to want to kill her and the person she is seen romantically, right? That's a good point. Yeah, that would explain, because I was initially thinking, why would you kill Lisa too? Like I said, but if it was a response to that rejection, then I think that's a plausible theory. But I do wonder, wouldn't Lisa's family or friends have known that this person fast their feelings, she rejected them, but maybe it just wasn't reported on publicly? They probably also didn't assume that, you know, if it was this person, then he wanted turn it into a uh, violent outburst, right? Right. Nobody would think that. So I'd also be curious about with their inner circle, what their alibis were for that night. Could they be accounted for elsewhere? I couldn't find any information about if there was a cast taken of any tire tracks near the crime scene, but if the family and friends who were out searching pulled up next to the truck when they found it, it could have made it more difficult to discern tire tracks from the killer. And then you'd have to consider when first responders arrived, that could have muddied things further. I did read that they investigated the area for footprints and tire tracks, but it's unclear if they got any solid footprints or tire tracks. Lisa's uncle believed that one or more of the men involved in the initial search for Brandon and Lisa could have been responsible for the murders. Which, if I get really calculated and dark, I would be interested in the person or multiple people who offered to drive that day for the search because the killer could have thought, well, if I drive, then it will make sense that my tire tracks are in the area. But I don't know if someone would have had that thought. The second school of thought or theory is that the murders were committed by a random person who could possibly be a serial offender or that this was a random person who killed them in a vehicle robbery gone wrong, like we discussed. The idea of this being a random perpetrator is appealing because it would help me understand why this case is still unsolved to this day. There have been similar murders across the country. One crime that is remarkably similar is the murder of Lindsay Cutshaw and Jason Allen. They were a young couple in their 20s who were sleeping on a beach in sleeping bags in Jenner, California, when they were killed by someone who shot them in the head one time each in August 2004. So that was not even a year after the murders of Lisa and Brandon. They were traveling through California when they tried to get a motel room, but the motel was fully occupied that night, so they decided 
Since they had camping gear, they would sleep on the beach, although it was prohibited. There are some pretty significant similarities here, although I should note that the type of gun used was different. Ultimately, Lindsay and Jason's case was solved in 2017 when an arrest was made. The man who killed them had no connection to Lindsay and Jason, and he said about the murders that he made himself do it with no apparent motive. I didn't fully research this case, so maybe there was some underlying motive that I don't know about, but from every article I read, I couldn't find a motive. One of the bigger differences I see between the cases is that Lisa and Brandon planned their trip and they weren't too far from home while Lindsay and Jason made a spontaneous decision to sleep on the beach. Lisa and Brandon's situation leaves open the possibility that they were targeted by someone they knew. So while there are some striking similarities between the murders, Yavapai County investigators did look into that man but there was no evidence that he killed Lisa and Brandon. This story should give us hope, though, that Lisa and Brandon's killer will be caught one day because it took a fairly significant amount of time for Lindsay and Jason's case to be solved. Another similar double murder is that of Mary Cooper and Susanna Stodden, a mother and daughter who were killed by a gunshot to the head while they hiked on Pinnacle Lake Trail in Washington State in July 2006. There was no apparent motive in that case either, and it remains unsolved. Again, there's no direct evidence of a connection to Lisa and Brandon's case. Definitely let us know if you'd be interested in us covering that case. I think it's somewhere on the list, but if there's interest in learning more about the murder of Mary and Susanna, we could definitely bump that up and cover that one here pretty soon. There have been some other similar crimes, but those have also not been connected to Lisa and Brandon. In a 2021 interview with Lieutenant Tom Bolt from the Yavapai County Sheriff's Office, he said that technology that is available today that wasn't available in 2003 could be a valuable resource in the case. More specifically, they discussed new equipment that can extract significant amounts of DNA from objects. There are also cold case volunteers who are actively reviewing the case who, according to Yavapai Silent Witness Director Chris Wilson, have more experience than you'd expect for a volunteer. These volunteers pour over cases and sift through reports and leads that haven't been reviewed in a long time. Deborah West is one of those volunteers, and she is focused on Lisa and Brandon's case. She believes there is a possibility like you've suggested, Sean, that the individual who committed their murders intended to steal their car, but were surprised when they saw two people in the back. Reportedly, there was a crime similar six months after their murders at a Crown King, Arizona campsite, not too far away from where Lisa and Brandon stayed. In that case, two men, Omar Casey and William Middaw, were shot dead and their truck was stolen. The suspect in that case, who was camping in the area at the same time as the two men, died by suicide not long after the murders in Colorado Springs. So I suppose he fled the state after committing the murders. So this certainly seems like a possibility, but investigators have said that they don't think that case is connected to the murders of Lisa and Brandon. 
Investigators seem very open to every possibility. They have a list of persons of interest, but have never named a suspect. They acknowledge the possibility that the person who killed Lisa and Brandon knew them, but they also acknowledge that it could have been a complete stranger. So I suppose my final theory or thoughts is that it's still, I think it's still a random, random murder. I think someone wanted to steal the truck or, you know, like I said, got it for its parts or whatever. And, you know, things just turned, it took a bad. So what do you think about the video camera? Do you think that after they, if this is what happened, after the person shot Lisa and Brandon, they kind of rummaged around and then stole the video camera and took the cam, uh, the disposable camera and then ditched the disposable camera? Yeah, probably. I mean, they were probably looking for valuable items and took what they could find. I don't know. I don't really know why you'd take the disposable camera. Maybe they thought it was something more valuable than what it actually was, but... Yeah, I think so. In the dark, it might be hard to tell. Yeah, I suppose they were looking for valuable items and took that video camera. Yeah, I'm pretty torn in this case. I have to say I could go either way. I think this could have been a targeted attack, someone who knew Lisa and Brandon. But I can also see what you're saying and what the cold case volunteer has suggested, that this really was just a random car robbery gone wrong. But I want to know what our listeners think in this case. I really do. Paula said in an Arizona Republic article in 2017, Quote, there's no reason why these two kids that were loved by so many should be where they are. These kids are no longer breathing. They're in the ground somewhere, and the person that did this is out there breathing every single day. It's not fair. It's just not fair. End quote. I wanted to be sure to include that specific quote because it resonated with me a lot, and it's really the driving force behind our podcast. I think about it with every case we cover, how as she said, the person responsible is still out there breathing. And that bothers me to no end. You don't get to murder someone and then go on about your life. But apparently you do because we talk about it all the time. And who knows how old this person is who did this to Lisa and Brandon. They could be 80 years old now, although I doubt it. But I don't care. They still need to be held accountable for the life they have remaining. For now, we can remember Lisa and Brandon as the bright young couple who both had their lives ahead of them, who seemed so in love. They would have gone on to do great things, and I don't doubt they would have reached their goals, Lisa being a wedding planner and Brandon of opening a gym. And if their goals changed, they would have met those too. When this episode comes out, as I mentioned in the beginning, it will be very close to the 20-year anniversary of their murder, so it's time for someone to come forward with information to resolve this case. If someone committed this murder who knew Lisa and Brandon, it's possible that there are other people who know outside of the person who actually committed it. Those people could hold the key to this case. If you have information related to the murders of Lisa and Brandon, you are asked to contact the Yavapai Silent Witness Hotline at 1-800-932-3232, or you can submit a tip at either silentwitness.org or yavapaisw.com. The $10,000 reward is still available. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode today. Definitely feel free to share your thoughts with us in this case on Instagram or via email. Interested to hear what you all think. That's all for today, but we'll be back next week with an all new case. Bye. Bye.